happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light 'em up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadows. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Uh, uh, oh, somebody handed me my horoscope on the way to the radio station today. <laughs> oh, dear. What a shock it says. Your success in life will relate directly to your ability to apply yourself to the task before you. Uh, she's written here in the margin. Take note, Jennifer Stone. She said, the water on the stone has no effect at all in your case. Anyway, she's an old friend. Uh, <laughs> I guess, I guess, it's no wonder I'm an eclectic failure. I can't stay on message. Free association is my downfall. One thing always leads to another. Existentialists never, never finish their books. You know how that is. Uh, <laughs> life runs away with us. Skirtu Stein says, circles, circles, circles. Ah, excuses, excuses, excuses. Rose is a rose is a rose. I am one of those who sees the ultimate ambiguity of all human endeavor. What's the use? What's the use? What if we do and what if we don't? Teach us to care and not to care. I guess, I guess, my motto is Carpe diem, seize the day, live in the moment. <laughs> you know, eat your ice cream while it's on your plate. Oh, God. Uh, I was going to... I was going to read you the I Ching today, but that horoscope did me in. The I Ching just said that uh, with any luck, there will be a small basket of wine and fruit handed to me through a hole in the wall. I figured that was cool, mm, you know. It all reminds me of my favorite character, uh, Sabina, in a play about human survival called Skin of Our Teeth. And it was written by Thornton Wilder, and I was talking about it in recent weeks because I had a biography, a terrific biography of Thornton Wilder, a man whose work we know, but his life less so. I like that. I like that. His work is more uh, part of our culture than uh, our knowledge about him. He kept his head down. He wasn't on the TV, right? Uh, anyway, in Skin of Our Teeth, there is a woman called Sabina, one of my favorite characters. Uh, 
she's almost a real person in my imagination. And I've been thinking about it because I recently was blessed with a godchild uh, born on February the 24th of this year. And that's her name. Uh, She put a Z in it. Well, her mother and father put a Z in it. She spelled it S-Z-A-B-I-N-A. So she's safe. She doesn't, uh, she isn't actually Sabina, but I guess it would be pronounced Sabina. Anyway, Shalola um, Bankhead was the original, the original actress back on Broadway. Ah, uh, gosh, I guess, oh, 1930s? Can't remember now. Anyway, uh, the uh, first performance of the play featured the, uh, Rabelaisian, the body actress, Tallulah Bankhead. Uh, she, Sabina, is the quickest wit. She's kind of like um, Becky Sharp, maybe, in uh, Thackeray's Vanity Fair. You might think of that character, but actually Sabina's an original. She's a survivalist. She's completely adaptable. In the play, she... Um, I don't like to call her a shapeshifter. That sounds um, uh, too magical. She's just completely adaptable. Each era or age uh, in human history, Sabina becomes someone else. She uh, transmogrifies. Anyway, whatever the times require, that she can do. Uh, she also seems to pick the roles that are the most fun. She's the woman at the crest of the wave. She takes life as it comes and just deals with things. Basically, she uh, she has a profound sense of humor. Of course, we know that any woman with a sense of humor is a lost woman. And uh, uh, I thought that today... It would be fun, well, I at first I thought it would be fun to talk about women and religion because of the Pope, you know. And uh, then I, what is it, I painted myself into a corner with that because it's too serious, it's too frightening. Uh, you know, all that medieval stuff, the games they're playing there at the Vatican, it's so retro, the Pope and... Uh, the chimney with the black smoke and the white smoke. Today there's white smoke. Uh, no decision made yes, yet. And I'm sure they're not going to present us with a girl. I believe there was once upon a time, uh, was it Pope Joan? I don't know. It, it's just a, a story I heard once that there was a female pope. But obviously not since the ancient, ancient religion, not since the great mother Yes, Uh, of course, this is the moment, this is the moment in our history when we do need, we do need uh, a great mother. I used to have a wonderful picture on my uh, refrigerator, my icebox. It said, make Mother Earth your Messiah. It was Bette Midler, all done up like a tree, you know. (laughs) Make Mother Earth your Messiah. Uh, before I forget, I want to tell you just briefly about a movie before it slips my mind. Um, it's uh, opening at the Shattuck 
cinema this Friday, and uh, the title is Fierce Green Fire. It's about the history of the environmental movement, and it's a movie about saving the earth. I heard something about it on KQED this morning, the other radio station, and I don't know anything about it. I haven't seen it yet, but I'm going to go Friday and see it. Opens at the Shattuck this Friday. Uh, but uh, from what I understand, uh, it's uh, it's got all the usual suspects. It's about the fight for planetary survival, and... The word is that it's perfectly safe to take the children. There are some uh, images of the tragic tragic consequences of our environmental pollution and so forth, toxic uh, death, but apparently it's okay to take the kids. Uh, yes, the Meryl Streeps and the Robert Redfords and Stuart Brand, and of course it all comes down to Gaia, G-A-I-A, Gaia. The planet is us, the great mother. Uh, it's all a metaphor, boys and girls. It's all a metaphor. And obviously, the last pope couldn't deal with it. He threw up his hands and went home to mother. <laughs> it's a wonderful cover on the current New Yorker. It's a picture of uh, Pope Benedict uh, in a hammock between two palm trees. Reading scandal sheets. <laughs> he's on his vacation, or at least he's quit. Anyway, um, the Pope, God bless him. Uh, <laughs> I, I couldn't help but giggle this morning listening to, oh well, you, you know, all the other medieval horrors. Uh, Paul Ryan, was it? Uh, Busy stealing from the people in Congress. Uh, rich get richer, the poor get babies. I thought, my God, it's the ninth century, folks. Uh, as I was leaving the house, I thought, the big, the big issue here is save the children, you know, grab the children and run. Uh, don't worry about orthodox religions. Don't worry about political, um, uh, political battles just save the children stop the suffering and uh, the news said that there are a million displaced children in Syria and I thought okay that's got to be top of the list along with the war on the imagination right uh, this century will inherit the wind if we don't get busy and do something about the damage we're doing to the next generation. Uh, the book that I grabbed, let's see, is Stolen Voices. The War Diaries of Young People. Oh, 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 oh boy. What do the kids have to say? Stolen Voices, Young People's War Diaries from World War One to Iraq. I've been reading at this book, and it's just too heartbreaking to read you. Uh, the, oh, dear. Anyway, it is edited by a woman from Bosnia. And she's better now. She has a, a, a life. There's all kinds of hopeful bits in here. Uh, young people who survived the wars that threatened to destroy them. But they are all, of course, wounded. Uh, let's see, the two women who edited this book, let's see, there's, uh, 
I'll have to, I'll just have to spell the names. The woman from Bosnia uh, has a whole diary. There are excerpts in this this uh, book. Uh, yes, there's her diary, and the other editor uh, is a friend of hers. Yes, uh, Z L A T A Zlata. F-I-L-I-P-O-V-I-C. Now, her diary, yes, was published earlier, but she and Melanie Callagher put together this collection of stolen voices. Uh, uh, Zlata's work is uh, written during the... Bosnia War, uh, Stolen Voices, Young People's War Diaries from World War One to Iraq. And I want to read you just a couple sentences from the introduction, uh, because she speaks of the amputation of imagination, I think always of Diane de Prima's poem, in which she talks about there being only one war, and that's the war on the imagination. You know how it is, the kind of suffering that stops people from thinking and then sooner or later stops them from feeling. Remember always the man from Vietnam trying to teach young women at Fort Bragg how to be soldiers and he explains to them that he can't do much for them because there's part of him that's missing, that he's uh, not all there. The amputation of imagination, the greatest threat. Anyway, in the introduction, uh, we read about the the problem that can only be solved by love, the revolution of touch. Uh, Here's what Zlata says. The frail flesh of man succumbs to amputation. Uh, the flesh is amputated by shrapnel, bullet, grenade. The body of a human being transformed to a new and cruel design by the scalpel of war. And so, too, the fragile borders of a country undergo transformations. A spur sliced here, an edge severed there, an outline brutally shaped beyond recognition, maps redrawn, new names inked onto the page... Just as Curtis Town was written into invisibility by the pens of cartographers, so Yugoslavia's boundaries dissolved from existence. Dozens of other countries came and went. These countries erased from maps linger in the minds of their countrymen for whom the homeland, surgent into invisibility, remains alive. Yet a greater threat exists than the amputation of bodily flesh or of homeland. That is, the amputation of imagination. The freedom to think to our best ability is significantly thwarted by daily traumas of conflict. In the general climate of censorship created by the aggressive nation-states that inaugurate war, the will to survive in times of crisis overmasters all other acts of thought that by their nature call for an extension into the lives of others. 
compassion, empathy, sympathy. Short off from the lives of others, individuals in wartime forfeit the faculties of commonality. They become isolated from all but themselves and their kin, sealed off from any sense of shared humanity. It's interesting, yes, she goes on here a little bit to say learning to adapt to the new forms, yes. Men and women carry into the future years a profound sense of loss, a potentially poisonous seed of nostalgia, a seed that may remain inactivated, or become the roots of the kind of nationalism that makes an enemy of neighbors in wartime. We think back over Bosnia, and now people said that before the war, everyone, you know, lived together happily. Uh, so many people we see in the world today are living together in comfort, in tolerance. But we know that uh, were things to change, were the ground to shift, neighbors could become enemies even here in these United States. Anyway, uh, there's another passage here from Nadine Gordimer. Uh, it's basically the same thing about collective being. I remember um, several writers in our depression, in our economic depression in the 30s, told us that we still had a, a feeling of shared fate. I'm becoming aware of the fact that in our, let's call it our regression, in our economic slump of the moment, there's not so much a feeling of shared, shared fate. Um, I think that maybe in the 30s, the rich understood the problems of the poor a little bit better than we understand them now. There's something going on now that is very mysterious. Um, I think, what is it, it's a kind of amnesia, a kind of lack of understanding of our fellow man, our fellow woman. Uh, something has happened that uh, I don't want to analyze right this minute. Uh, <laughs> I turn on the television and I wince because I expect to see... Uh, Programs are all about the million children in Syria who need help and who are not being helped. And I want someone to uh, do something about that. And then I think, uh, <laughs> if if not if not uh, me and those I know, then who? I I guess that's what I'm talking about. My fear, my deep fear that uh, our own civilization is toxic. Something is wrong. Now, I know, I know that there is uh, a force, let's call it, well, the Occupy movement might be one, but there are forces at work, uh, things happening, folks. Uh, oh, oh, yes, where did I put it here? Uh, uh, I was looking at, would you believe, Sigmund Freud? Oh, dear me, I just, 
I hate to use Freud, but the fact is, uh, he's not, what is it? He's not altogether negative. He's what I call, well, as I used to say, uh, uh, Freud got it wrong, but he got it. What Freud talked about was the desire to live and the desire to die. And I've been occupied with that recently because uh, I've been wondering if and when we were going to have this revolution, this revolution of touch. The other day I got on the bus and I was thinking about how we didn't have a feeling of shared fate and <laughs> and uh, an elder, an older woman fell down. Uh, she fell down near the back door of the bus and I was really startled to see uh, four young men, uh, African-American, looked like maybe high school age, leap to help this uh, old lady, this uh, frail, blonde, um, Euro-American <laughs> elder. And they lifted her right up and set her on her feet and they they saw to it that she got off the bus and handed her back her things, and I thought, well, obviously I'm wrong. There are plenty of human beings, at least on the buses, uh, <laughs> but that isn't enough. That isn't enough to uh, change my mind. I I guess I, I was looking for that feeling that we had back in the 60s, ho, 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 half a century ago when... We all just talked to each other, especially here in Berkeley. I don't know. We just uh, we had an open society for a little while, briefly. Uh, I was thinking of Fred Cody out in front of the bookstore one time. A cop was ordering me to get back up on the sidewalk. And uh, I went, Haktung or something. I made a, a joke that he was being fascistic and... Uh, the whole crowd laughed and clapped, you know. Truth is, I don't know if I could do that today. I don't know if people would laugh. Uh, anyway, I want to talk a little bit about uh, Eros and Thanatos, the impulse to live and the impulse to die. I read Freud years ago, and I thought, well, he's got something there. <laughs> he said, actually... Yeah, he was talking about, I guess, about sex. He said it wasn't sex that drives us. It was, what is it, uh, a desire to vegetate. That was the, the ultimate human uh, desire. Anyway, I still think that the struggle is between Eros and Thanatos, the gods of life and death. Uh, Eros, of course, is what we've got to work on so that we can save this planet. Yes, uh it isn't that uh, death is a bad thing. It's just that, uh, uh, what is it, the metaphor. Thanatos is the desire to, well, my desire to cop out, to quit, to give up, uh, to despair. The last temptation of Christ, right? Anyway, in the book Civilization and Its Discontents, ho, ho, Freud writes as follows. The fateful question of the human species seems to me to be whether and to what extent the cultural process developed in it, that is, in the human species, will succeed in mastering 
the derangements of communal life caused by the human instinct of aggression and self-destruction. In this connection, perhaps the phase through which we are at this moment passing deserves special interest. Men have brought their powers of subduing the forces of nature to such a pitch that by using them, they could now very easily exterminate one another to the last man. I have a footnote here. And even to the last woman. (laughs) Freud goes on. They know this. They know this. Right. Hence arises a great part of their current unrest, their dejection, their mood of apprehension. And now it may be expected that the other of the two heavenly forces, eternal Eros, will put forth his strength so as to maintain himself alongside of his equally immortal adversary. Now, that's Freud, Sigmund Freud, in Civilization and Its Discontents, and that's written, oh, gee, I think before World War II. Mm -hmm. And, of course, he's talking about Eros as a he. Uh, I think, yes, Eros, Cupid, was a he, the son of Aphrodite, but what if, you know, we can always change the myths to suit ourselves. Now, what if, what if Eros is a woman? I mean, at least half the time. I I know that there's plenty of death or Thanatos connected with (laughs) women, (laughs) yes, but, um, There's also a lot of eros, a lot of uh, positive, life-giving stuff. Uh, They are, of course, the vessel. They give birth. They are the mothers of men. Uh, In any case, uh, I'm looking here at an essay I have in a book from, uh, oh gosh, the 1988... It's a book I wrote. One of the chapters is called The Imperative of Intimacy. And it's all about this need, this uh, need for the revolution of touch. The Imperative of Intimacy. And I don't have time, of course, to read the whole thing, but it's all about this notion that uh, uh, there is a feminine quality uh, in Eros and that... uh, This is eroticism, and that females are just as erotic as any males. Uh, I think, let's see, I'm trying to find this letter describing civilization and its discontents. Uh, It was written by a friend of mine, Right, she criticizes dear old Freud. Uh, She says, 
Well, she quotes here. First of all, she quotes Freud. Normally, there is nothing we are more certain of than the feeling of ourself, our own ego. It seems to us an independent, unitary thing, sharply outlined against everything else. And here she goes on to talk about um, the fact that it is the feminine uh, eros that seems to be able to dissolve, to have an oceanic awareness of others, uh, to have an indissoluble connection. I remember in the old days, they used to criticize women for this, saying that we had no borders. We were unable to define ourselves, <laughs> that our egos were weak. Fascinating stuff, isn't it? Anyway, as the ad says, reach out and touch someone. This has been Jennifer Stone with Stone's Thrill. Uh, oh, yes. I've been skipping along this this half hour stone skipping across the surface I'll be back on the air at the same time next week till then go easy and if you can't go easy go as easy as you can drop the Sunday, March 17th, be at Laney College Theater in Oakland for the film premiere of a new talk by Bob Avakian, B.A. Speaks, Revolution, Nothing Less. Here's Cornell West. My dear brother, Bob Avakian, he is the chairman of the Revolutionary Communist Party, a legendary freedom fighter, one of the few coming out of the 60s who never sold out, he never gave up, held on to his forging of a rigorous scientific analysis driven by a revolutionary love Poor people, oppressed people. But whether you agree or disagree with our brother, one thing you cannot deny, that he is the real thing.